week uh, with Ashley, we started by thinking about that game, I think some of us have played it, where uh, with a friend, and they ask you to just fall backwards. It's a bit of a test of trust. They ask you to fall back, to risk everything on the promise that they will catch you. And that was a really helpful illustration as we met a man called Abram. As we looked at Genesis 11 and 12 and the circumstances of Abram's life, the circumstances of his family, the barrenness of his wife, Sarah, and we also looked at the promises made by God to this man, we had to ask the question, can we trust God to keep his promises? Can we trust God to keep his promises? Is God going to be the kind of friend who catches us? Or is he going to be the kind of friend who just walks away and lets us fall? Abraham has left his own country in the hope of a future promise. We need to remember, if we just look back, there's a monumental difference between what God says to Abraham to do now and what promises lie in the future. Just look at it at the start of chapter 12 with me. God says to Abraham to go now in verse 1 of chapter 12, but in verses 2 and 3, he says he will do something in the future. And that is the call of faith that Abraham is called to. A faith that looks forward to the day when God will fulfill his promises. But I think as we come to our passage this week, that question we asked at the beginning, can we trust God to keep his promises, is flipped around. As we look into chapter 12 and 13 and 14, it's now more about us. The focus has shifted slightly. Instead of asking, can we trust God, we're going to ask the question, are we going to trust God? Are we going to choose to have faith in him at all? Are we going to choose to trust him? Nor is God dependable, but are we going to be dependent on him? And this question really dominates most of the rest of Genesis and most of the rest of the Bible because, spoiler alert, God keeps all his promises. You see, God's faithfulness was never really in doubt, but ours is. When faced with the world's opposition and problems and uncertainty, Are we going to carry on trusting God? Is Abraham, in our passage tonight, going to carry on trusting God and his promises? Well, let's dive into our passage and find out. And our first point is faith or fright. Faith or fright. And we're just looking at chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. Faith or fright. It's a good thing to note uh, at the start of this talk uh, that Abraham, I think has already been mentioned, is uh, said, has a mention in Hebrews 11 as a model of faith. He's someone who we can look at and say, that is what a life of faith looks like. And now hear that carefully. He's a model of faith. He's a model of perseverance, of continuous trust in God, but not perfection. He's not a model of perfection, but of perseverance. Jesus is the perfect model, but Abraham demonstrates for us what it's like to strive to be faithful in God's world. So last week we left Abraham and his family. They were setting out towards the Negev in Canaan. But if we look down at verse 10, we see there's a famine in the land. Famine means people die, livestock die, and generally everything is going downhill quickly. So straight away in this section, we see a threat to the promises God has made. We see a threat to that family he has promised Abram. And it's awfully hard to have children if Abraham is dead. So what is Abraham going to do? Is he going to build an altar like we've seen him do already? Is he going to call out to God for help? Well, let's have a look. 
just look down at it with me, and we see Abraham does neither. The author just states that he goes to Egypt. He leaves the land God has promised him. And yes, we could say we aren't explicitly told that this was wrong. And I actually don't think here that Abraham was kind of denying God or sinning deliberately. But I think he has a sinful reflex to self-reliance. A sinful reflex to self-reliance. And that's what he's exercising here. He sees trouble. He relies on himself to get out of there. And things only get worse for him. Just look down at verses 11 to 13. As we read it, we can just see this is not how to treat your wife. Okay, if you're married here, this is not how to treat your wife. I mean, Abram has a real shocker here. Just like Australia this afternoon in the ashes, it is mistake after mistake. But just look at him. He fears for his own well-being and safety in Egypt. So what does he do? He encourages his wife, Sarai, to lie about who she is. I think Abram is struggling to have a real trust and faith in God. He's thinking, hold on a second, my wife, I mean, she's serious stuff. And if I go to Egypt, they're going to want her and they're going to kill me to take my wife. But then he thinks to himself, aha, if she's my sister, then the law and the customs dictate that I can negotiate a good price for her. I could even reject a few offers of marriage and I probably won't be killed. This is a great plan. Sarai, say that you are my sister. It's a disaster. Again, here we see Abraham choosing to try and fulfill the promises of God without God himself. When there is pressure and fear, Abraham chooses fright over faith. His distrust in God and his character is expressed in his desire to take control of the situation, to be captain of his own fate. And maybe it's good to pause here and ask, are we prepared to choose ungodly means as a way to get to God's end. Because I don't really trust God. I don't trust God to get me there, to have control over that area of my life. Maybe we're tempted to think, I need to be selfish with my money because I need to secure my future. I know that's something I can struggle with. And now there's nothing wrong with prudence, but is our distrust of God as yet, do we distrust God that has a future plan for our lives? Do we not trust that he has a plan in place for us? And do we express that distrust in a desire to have more money in our bank account than we'd ever dream of giving away? Or maybe we often think, I need to make it known that I'm a, I've done this really good thing, that I've served in this special way at church. I need to tell someone. Why do we feel that temptation? Well, it's because we don't trust God to affirm and bless me in his own time. I don't really trust that when Jesus says we need to store treasure in heaven, it's better than earthly praise here and now. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves, are we prepared to choose ungodly means as a way to get to God's end? But let's look back to our passage. How is this situation with Abraham going to work out? Let's just read on. Let's just look down at verses 14 to 16 of chapter 12. And we can see there that things really don't go to plan for Abraham, do they? The one guy in all of Egypt he definitely can't say no to, the Pharaoh, the king of all Egypt, chooses Sarai to be part of his court, to be part of his harem of wives. But just look down and notice with me how even in the midst of Abram's unfaithfulness, God is still graciously working out his own purposes. Abram is materially blessed here in Egypt, even when he doesn't deserve to be. 
But equally, Pharaoh, we could say, has cursed. He's dishonored Abraham, hasn't he? He's taken his wife. And what did God promise at the start of chapter 12 would happen to those who cursed Abraham and his descendants? Well, he said that they would be cursed. And in verse 17 to the end of this section, that's what we see is happening. God is faithful to his promises yet again. He's saying, Abraham, I told you that I would be faithful. I told you that I would thwart any plan against you, that I would curse those who curse you. Abraham, trust in me. I am faithful to my promises. Now, understandably, we see that Pharaoh is a little annoyed at Abraham, and so sends him away as quickly as possible. Sends him away with his wife and everything he'd received in Egypt. I can't imagine that journey out of Egypt with Sarah was much fun, can you? Yes, dear. Uh, sorry, dear, you're probably right. It, it was a little bit silly of me to let you get taken by Pharaoh and call you my sister. That was pretty stupid. I promise it, it won't happen again. I won't call you my sister again. And that kind of happens for a while. But if we flicked over to uh, Genesis chapter 20, we would see that Abraham does it all again. Again, he asked Sarai to pretend to be his sister. This guy is unbelievable. But what should this episode in Egypt teach us? Well, firstly, Egypt acted as a test for Abraham's faith, didn't it? Would he choose fear and fright? Or would he choose trust and faith in God? But we know that Abraham failed, didn't he? But will we, when faced with difficulty, choose faith? Or will we also choose fright? And it's good to notice, isn't it, that once again, God is faithful to his promises. God passes the test with flying colors. He rescues Abraham. He proves his faithfulness. So we're left with the question, what has Abraham learned from his time in Egypt? Has he seen the errors of his ways as he went away from God? Is he going to grow in his walk with God? And that brings us on to our second point, faith or sight, faith or sight. And we're looking at the whole of chapter 13 here. In this chapter, we're going to see a lot of contrasts from the previous chapter. Contrast to the repeated failure and lack of faith in Egypt. Just look at the start of that chapter with me. And we see that Abraham ends up back where he started, back in Bethel. It's like Abraham is hitting the reset button on his faith. He's gone away. He's really messed up. But now he's back. I think this is faith exemplified, isn't it? His heart was prone to wander away from God, to distrust God, but it also came back again. It turned back to God, turned back to having faith and trust in him. Do we see the difference already in the start of this chapter? It starts with Abraham calling on the name of the Lord in verse four, praying to him, relying on him, sacrificing to him. Here we see Abraham coming out of Egypt, and coming back to trust God. Notice that the author of Genesis also, again, makes it abundantly clear the riches of Abraham. God has blessed him even in his failure. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that often material blessings are a sign of God's favor, of his blessing with his people. So this chapter is a good start from Abraham, isn't it? It makes a difference to the start of the last section. But again, we have a threat, we have a tension come up in the narrative. See it with me in verses six and seven. We find out that Abram and Lot are now loaded, kind of like the Roman Abramoviches of the shepherd world. They have all these flocks and servants and herd. They have everything they could want. But the land isn't big enough for them to stay together, so there's quarreling, there's a bit of arguing between the two. 
probably also arguments between Abram and Lot's people and the Perizzites and the Canaanites. So what are they going to do? How is this going to be resolved? Is there going to be a big fallout? Are they going to fight it out? Are they going to visit the Jeremy Kyle of Canaan? Well, thankfully, that doesn't happen, and Abram steps up to the plate in verse 8. Just look at that with me. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. This is a real heart change, isn't it, from Abram? Just note the difference here in these few verses to the last chapter. See, Abram doesn't pull rank as God's chosen person. Rather, he trusts God completely. And we see this trust because he lets Lot choose first where he's going to go. Just look at it in verse 9. He allows Lot to go left or right wherever he chooses. See, Abram doesn't say, well, Lot, okay, I'm the chosen guy. Let me choose my place and then you can have wherever's left. No, he doesn't do that at all. He says, Lot, you choose, and where you go, I'll go somewhere else. I'll go where God tells me to do. See, Abraham relinquishes the control, the control that the last chapter he was so desperate to keep hold of. Here he lets it go. He's gone from self-dependent to God-dependent. Here we see Abraham chooses faith over sight. And we see that Abraham is actually in total contrast in this chapter to Lot. Just look at verse 10 with me, and we see that emphasized. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. There are a few indicators in these verses that, uh, that what Lot is doing is not a good thing, that he's going to a bad place. Firstly, just notice that Lot is all about what he can see, as I emphasized. Lot looked around. He saw that the whole plain of the Jordan. See, it looks good to Lot, and therefore he has no second thought. There's no inquiry to God. Let's just crack on. It looks good. Let's just go for it. Lot is all about sight over faith. Secondly, just look at the two comparisons he makes in verse 10. Lot decides to compare the land he's going to with two places that ended awfully for God's people. Firstly, he compares it to the Garden of Eden. If we remember in Genesis 3, the garden ended badly. It ended with the people being banished from God's presence and the whole world being cursed. And the second place Lot compares it to is Egypt. Well, they just come from Egypt, and Egypt uh, was all about Abram's failings and the failings of his family. It's a place where they wandered massively from God and his promises and failed to be faithful. I think it's just like choosing a restaurant because the sign for it was fancy, it was lit up, it was in neon, but you never actually look at the menu, you never check out the reviews. It's just something you wouldn't choose on that basis. Third thing to notice, the mention of going east in, that, in those verses is also worrying. Again, if we think back to Genesis 3, the people were banished from the east side of the garden. Often in the Bible now, the east is going to be associated with the curse, with sin, with going away from God. Fourthly, and finally, we're told that the place where he was going is going to be destroyed in the future. We're told that the people who live there are wicked, sinful people. These verses are screaming to us, Lot is making a bad decision based on sight, not on faith. 
But before we judge him, we need to ask, how quick are we to do the same? How often in life does the grass seem greener on the other side? On the side that doesn't involve God? Maybe the side that doesn't require endurance? The side that doesn't require repentance and perseverance and hardship? How often are we tempted as Christians to take our eyes off Christ and put them onto the world? as if the world could ever satisfy more than Jesus could. So it's Lot who ends up in a bad place. So then we have to ask, well, what's going to happen to Abram? Where is he going to go? Well, verse 12 tells us he's going to settle in the land of Canaan. But verse 14 is where it gets really interesting. Just look at it with me. Straight after Lot has left to do his own thing, we see that God comes to Abram. And this is a sure marker that Abram has done the right thing in choosing faith oversight. And in verses 14 to 17, God reiterates his promises of land to Abram. He instructs Abram, look around, walk around the land, take it all in. This is what I promise to you. I don't know how many of you have ever walked up Arthur's seat here in Edinburgh, but when you get to the top, uh, you are sometimes fortunate enough, if it's one of those once-in-a-year nice days in Edinburgh, like today, to have a view over all of Edinburgh. You can just see for miles and miles towards the Pentlands and even further. And this is Abraham's situation here. The place his tents are is a hill area, and God says, Abraham, look out over all of it. Look at this glorious land. This is what I'm giving to you. See as far as you can. This is what I promise you. You can trust me. Abraham, you've chosen to trust me. You didn't try and pick the land first. You chose to trust me. Here's what I promised you. God is reassuring Abraham as his faithful servant. And so verse 18 almost brings us full circle from the start of the chapter. Just look down. It says, So Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. See, the author of this chapter has deliberately started and ended it with Abram building an altar to the Lord. Remember, the altar is the place of sacrifice. It's a place of worship. We're meant to see here that Abram is a man after God's own heart, a man who starts with worship and ends in worship. The challenge, again, Abram lays down for us as a model of faith is how do we respond to an uncertain future? When there are circumstances that are difficult, when the future is murky, are we quick to cling to God's promises? Or do we suddenly find ourselves, like Abram was in Egypt, grasping for control? Do we find ourselves wanting to put down the sandbanks against the flood of life? And what do we think about God? Well, obviously, we ask him to bless our ways, don't we? But often, he doesn't feature other than that. You see, God promises to never leave us or forsake us. God promises to use everything for our good, to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus. Are we trusting those promises as we look to our own future? Are we going to choose faith over sight? Well, our final point tonight is faith or might. Faith or might. And we're looking at chapter 14. Now, I'm sure many of us probably got a bit confused when James was reading uh, that chapter earlier. I know I did when I first read it. 
Uh, there's lots of names mentioned. There's a, a battle, a rebellion. Um, there's lots of things going on. So on the screen, hopefully, there's a diagram that slightly helps us. Um, so what is happening, we see in the first 12 verses of chapter 14, is that there are five kings that live on the south side of the Dead Sea. They, are controlled, uh, they control cities, these five kings, and they pay tributes uh, to the four kings from the east. Remember, east is generally bad in the Bible. But these five kings weren't too happy about their arrangement. If we look down at verse four, it says, for 12 years, these five kings had been subject to Kedalamer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So the five kings team up to rebel against this other king, against the four kings who rule over him, but it doesn't go too well for them. They think they can win the battle, but it ends very badly. Look at verses five to seven. We see that the four kings defeat a few of the tribes involved in the rebellion. They take back huge swathes of land that the rebels had conquered. Then we scan down to eight to 12, and we see that the four kings make their last big stand. But again, we see that they're overwhelmed. These four, five kings lose the great battle, and they flee. Look at verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. See, these four kings had a formidable alliance in the east. They were kings of great might. They destroyed easily and swept away easily the five kings who rebelled, and they took what they pleased in their victory, including, as we just read, Lot, Abram's nephew, and all his possessions. Now, I wonder if we can see the irony here in this chapter. Lot, who we just saw, chose first the land, the one who selfishly wanted the best land for himself, is now the one plundered of everything. Everything he'd gained from choosing first has been lost, and he's also been kidnapped. We see that the one chasing wealth without God has become poor and needy. So what is Abraham, Abraham sorry, going to do? What is he going to do about his nephew? Well, in verses 13 to 16, we get the daring rescue mission. I think a lot of us might have seen uh, the film uh, The Martian uh, with Matt Damon. And in that film, Matt Damon's character is stuck on Mars. And people from Earth uh, attempt to devise a rescue mission. It has a tiny chance of success to a planet hundreds of thousands of miles away. But let me tell you that this story of Abraham is more epic than that film. Because here is one man with one household daring to take on an alliance of four international kings with huge armies and great might who've just won a war. But what do we see happens? We see that Abraham wins. We read that with just 318 men, he routes the kings, takes back Lot, brings back all the possessions and the people with him. No one and nothing is lost. Again, we ask the question, what is this rescue mission teaching us? Is it teaching us that Abraham's 300 men were actually like the Spartans? They were epic at fighting. They all had six packs. They never lost. No, that's not what it's teaching us. Maybe it's teaching us that Abraham was a master tactician, that he was a genius of war. He knew what he was doing. Well, no, I don't think it's that either. 
To understand what it's teaching us, we need to look how Abraham interacts with the two kings who come in the next few verses. Firstly, the king of Salem, a guy called Melchizedek. Just look at that in verses 18 to 20. Now, Melchizedek is a difficult character to understand. He is only mentioned in the Bible three times. He's mentioned here, once in the Psalms, and then once again in Hebrews. And all we know about him is that he was a priest of God, and he was also a king, and we also know that Jesus was greater than him. But his words to Abraham reveal something very key. Just look at it with me. He says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek says, praise be to God. Why does he say that? Because he delivers your enemies into your hand. You see, Melchizedek gets it. He says to Abram, remember God. Praise God, because he is the one who gave you victory. He is the one to trust as he keeps all his promises. It's all about God. He was with you. That's why you overcame. Not because Abraham was a master tactician, not because his men were epic warriors, but because God was with him. When faced with this difficult situation, Abraham trusted God. He didn't trust in his own might. He didn't trust in the might of his men. He trusted in God. He chooses faith over might. And this conversation with Melchizedek actually informs what Abraham, Abraham says to the second king, the king of Sodom that very wicked place we read about in chapter 13. See, in verses 21 to 24, the king of Sodom wants to take the people that Abraham's rescued and says, in return, I'll give you all these possessions. But just look at it. Abraham is having none of it. Verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn on earth to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, Notice, it's exactly the same language that Melchizedek used. That I will accept nothing belonging to you, nor even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. See, Abraham knows that victory is God's. Abraham has the plunder and the riches because God has chosen to give them him. He has grasped at control before in Egypt, and it ended awfully. Abraham has learned through faith to trust God, to trust God for his future. Abraham is learning to trust God with his security, with his health, with his wealth, with his well-being. Abraham wants nothing to do with this king and the riches he offers. He just wants to trust God and trust his promises. Again, as we look at Abraham, as we look at this model of faith, we have to ask ourselves, are we trusting God like Abraham? Trusting God doesn't mean reckless living. It doesn't mean not caring for our well-being or being uh, prudent with our finances. But it might mean that none of those things take number one priority in our lives. Living out a faithful life of trust might look like generosity. Generosity in the home, at work, giving to church. It's going to look like moving towards others in a sacrificial way to care for them as we seek for their welfare Trusting God will care for us as we care and nurture others. But maybe we're here and we don't trust God at all. Maybe we haven't started this journey of faith. Or if we remember, Abram was told that through his offspring, 
the world would be blessed. And let me tell you that that offspring has come. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, not the model of faith, but the perfect, faithful son of God. The one who did nothing wrong. The one who never strayed to Egypt. The one who never trusted in his own power. Rather, the one who says this, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus is able to say those words just before he goes to the cross. Here is Jesus trusting God even in the face of death and punishment. See, Jesus dies in the place of sinful people. People like you and me. People who've acted like God doesn't even exist. And he dies and he takes every ounce of punishment we deserve for denying this creator of heaven and earth. This Lord most high. But it means that now we can come to God. We can ask for forgiveness. And as he has promised in his words, he will forgive us because of what Jesus did on the cross. Here is God's trustworthy promise. He will forgive us in Jesus. But we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, where do we need to repent of our self-reliance? Where are we tempted to trust ourselves but not trust God? What areas of our lives are we tempted to just believe in ourselves and not hand over to God? God is someone who keeps his promises. To church, we can rejoice, we can seek to trust God more and more because he is faithful and trustworthy and in Jesus, all his promises are yes and amen. Let's pray.